Uh, as I was preparing, I realized I was the first person other than Nathan who's jumped into Romans. And Nathan's been teaching to the ESV, but he's using all his cross-references in the New American Standard. And I kind of had to come to a crossroads and figure out, was I going to teach from ESV or New American Standard? And so I decided to stick with what Nathan's been doing. So I will teach um, the main passage from the English Standard Version. But when it comes to all of my cross-references, everything else, those will be New American Standard. So as I read the text, um, it will be ESV just as Nathan has been doing. Uh, just by way of review, um, now as we get onto the official start of the lesson, Paul's ended chapter 2 with some shocking revelations. This cliffhanger been sure to get all of the Roman Jews up in arms, making blog posts up on Twitter. Um, how could Paul make this claim that the Jew is condemned by the law? Was this not the very law that made Jews better than the Gentiles? And then to make matters worse, Paul makes the claim that a Gentile, someone who is uncircumcised and does not have the mark of a Jew, if he keeps the law, he is just as good as a Jew is. So how could Paul possibly salvage this? I mean, after all, the purpose of this letter, he's writing to the Romans, trying to seek support as he um, is looking to make this next missionary journey. Uh, these aren't kind of the statements you would make to somebody you're looking for support from. Uh, imagine if Justin were getting up for building support uh, message and he started insulting us and saying all sorts of offensive things. I don't think we would be very inclined to give him much money. But Paul's secret here is that his goal is not to offend the Jews because he dislikes them or to say mean things about them to bully, him, bully them into giving him money, but rather so that he can begin to unravel the truth surrounding the nature of man and what part the Jews play in the history of salvation. So if you want to turn to Romans chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 1 through 20 this morning. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. It says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. <clears throat> Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we pray that you would be magnified through the teaching of your word. We pray that we would 
um, be able to rejoice in your righteousness and that you would make this truth known to us as we uh, look at the nature of who you are and the nature of who we are. Lord, we pray that you would uh, make these things clear to us. Amen. So I have decided to title this message, God Reveals His Naughty List, um, as this is our last lesson before Christmas. Um, I figured I would try to sneak in a reference there. Um, and uh, we do have quite the list of sinfulness, um, so it seemed like it was the best title I could give it. So kind of divided into two sections here, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 9 through 20. So we'll look at this first section. I've not given them any points, so we just got section 1 and section 2. So Paul opens up the chapter, as he does many times in the book of Romans, with a conversation between himself and himself. Here he knows there are going to be so many questions raised by what he has said at the end of chapter 2, so he decides to take it upon himself to answer those questions. So the brief glance at, chapter, at the first eight verses, we see Paul is moving very quickly, almost as if he does not want the reader to give up here. He's writing with urgency. In doing this, however, Paul puts the responsibility on us as the reader to slow things down and understand what it is he is talking about and the importance of each of his points. So let's go through the questions that he has to say. So first question, he says, what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? This is a great question. Chapter 2 has essentially told the Jews that their failure to keep the law breaks their end of the Mosaic Covenant. So being an ethnic Jew has essentially become insignificant. Paul told us that the real Jews were the ones who had followed the law and not the ones who had been born into Judaism and circumcised. If the Jews reading this letter were to think about it objectively, they would realize that Paul has been saying this whole time that there is no Jew, no one in all of history who has kept the law. And we'll see this in greater detail in section 2. Paul puts this in as clear, as clear terms as he is able, using Old Testament to back him up. But this doesn't answer the question. It only continues to worsen the problem. So if theoretically anybody could become a Jew, or if in practical terms nobody can be a Jew, we must dig deeper to find out what advantage a Jew would have. Why does it matter that God called out a special people? Thankfully, Paul begins to answer this in verse 2. And I say begin because this is exactly what happens. Paul is able to list exactly one criteria, one reason for, being, for the advantage of a Jew before he distracts himself on another tangent. Uh, fortunately, Paul remembers a few more of these advantages in chapter 9, uh, which we'll cover in a couple of months. So I'm not going to cover all of those advantages, but we do get one important reason, and we're not left in the dark for very long. So Paul says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So the first benefit to being a Jew is, that Paul talks about is the fact that the Jews were the ones to whom God gave his revelation. Paul reminds his readers that there was so much more to being a Jew than ethnicity or the uh, sign of circumcision. In Psalm 147, verses 19 through 20, uh, the psalmist writes, He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. There is no other nation on earth with the blessing of receiving God's word. If we consider all the other nations throughout Old Testament history, we say they've all turned to idolatry, they commit many sins, and their only understanding of God comes from the people of Israel and what they see of them. Now, this phrase, the oracles of God, surely refers to the entirety of the Old Testament, all of the words that were written to the people of Israel. But the highlight of the Old Testament in Paul's argument here are the promises of salvation. 
Now, if we viewed the Old Testament as merely the law, we'd be going in circles again. So being a Jew is so much more than keeping the law, but look, you guys had the law. That, that doesn't work. We have to look at the whole of the Old Testament, the promises that God made to his people, particularly the prophecies regarding the gospel. And I'm going to break out into a mini-sermon here, um, kind of tangent myself. Uh, it is the week before Christmas, and we aren't doing a specific Christmas series this year. Um, so this seems like a great place to take a detour and look at some of the oracles of God, see how the Old Testament sets up the gospel. With kind of an Advent style, hopefully many of these passages will be familiar to you all. Um, in one sense, there's no better way to celebrate Christmas than with a reminder of God's righteousness and man's sinfulness. But I think the text gives me enough room to go through some of these Old Testament passages, uh, so I'm going to take that opportunity. So within this, we've got a detour here, how the Old Testament sets up the gospel. Right out of the gate, at the very beginning of all time, in Genesis 3, um, right after we see that everything is very good, we see mankind fall into sin. And as soon as there is sin, we have a promise of salvation. Genesis 3.15, God gives a curse to the serpent that doubles as the first promise of a savior. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, even though Adam and Eve are not technically part of the nation of Israel, this promise is recorded for the Jews by Moses in his record of their history. The next promise we see comes from God's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram out from his family's home and from his country so that God could make him a great nation and a great blessing. Genesis 12.3 says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This promise gets reiterated later to Abraham again, and to his son Isaac, and to his grandson Jacob. It's here that we see the Jewish heritage really begin. So we could say that with the Abrahamic covenant, we get the first of the many oracles that God has entrusted the people of Israel with. (coughs) As we gave... as we see how God gave his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These promises regarding the coming Savior are becoming more and more specific and revealing more details about who this uh, Messiah would be. In Genesis 49, Jacob gives a blessing to Judah, and whether he knew it or not, he was giving another part of the salvation promise. So Genesis 49.10, Jacob's blessing says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So even before we have an official nation or a system of government or rulers of this nation, the Jews are promised that they will, not, that they will have a leader from Judah's line when the Messiah appears. As we move into the time of Moses, we get a promise that the Messiah will be like a prophet Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19, the Lord speaks through Moses and says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that when whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, this promise, on a first glance, doesn't seem like it maybe is specific enough to be speaking about the Messiah. Uh, there are many prophets who came throughout Israel's history But fortunately, someone with enough authority to interpret this prophecy took it and included it in their own sermon. So that would be the Apostle Peter in Acts 3. He says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven 
must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to him you should give heed to everything he says to you. So through this point so far, we have seen the oracle of God in salvation, referring to the promised seed of the woman from the nation that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, from the tribe of Judah, and that he would be a prophet like Moses, whom we ought to listen to. So the next promise will move forward several hundred years in Israel's history to 2 Samuel 7. We see God establish his covenant with David, and he says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David's lineage would be the one continuing for the purpose of bringing about the one who will reign forever. They'll be the source of the authority of the Messiah. In Isaiah, we're given more promises about the nature of the Messiah, namely the circumstances surrounding his birth and the, the name that he will be called. In Isaiah 7:14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now this promise might be the most difficult for the people of Israel to fathom yet. They've been given the oracles of God. They've been told to be looking for one of their own, of the tribe of Judah, one who will be a great prophet and one who will be of David's kingly line. But now they're told that a virgin will be the one to birth him. Isaiah is not done with his prophecies. Uh, there's actually a lot of prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Some of them point to Christ. Some of them are about the nation of Israel. But all of them are, again, part of the oracles of God that the Jews had received. But the next one that we want to look at is in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, saying, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So we return to the idea that Messiah is one who will reign. Isaiah gives a prophecy focused on the everlasting nature of God's authority as well as highlighting God's justice and righteousness, which Paul focuses on as well back in our passage in Romans. The last prophecy that I want to look at, again, should be very familiar to us, is Micah 5.2, which tells us where the Messiah will come from. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me, for me to be the ruler in Israel, whose going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So God is comprehensive with his promises. He gives as much information as he needs to, and yet he deems it good to give even a prophecy as to where the Messiah would be born. Now, I end with this prophecy, talking about the oracles of God, because it points out so well how the Jews had missed the point on the things that they were to uh, be paying attention to and what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, when we come to the New Testament, the Magi from the East come, and they ask where the Messiah was to be born, and the priests and the men of the temple tell them that they quote this verse to him. They say, from Bethlehem he is to be born. And yet they did not once consider that they ought to be looking for the Messiah there. They had been entrusted with this prophecy, but it was not doing them any good because they were not acting upon it. They had been given everything they needed. They had all the prophecies concerning the Messiah, even many more than the ones that we've just looked at. Even more uh, significantly, perhaps, than these, they had promises from God that they were his chosen people and that they ought to conduct their way as such. And sadly, they also had received the words of punishment that told them they would rightly receive judgment for their failure to act as God's people. 
So hopefully this detour into these Advent passages has been good both as a reminder of Christmas as we look forward to that in the next couple weeks and as an example of what the Jews had been entrusted with. So we're going to pull off from that detour and we'll come back to verses 3 through 4. In Romans 3, it says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So now we've looked into the oracles of God. Let's continue with this argument. Paul's hypothetical opponent is now bringing up the fact that the Jews were unfaithful. And Paul's reply is very simply, so what if they were unfaithful? The actions of a faithless people cannot nullify the faithfulness of an unchanging God. We see in 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul says that if we are faithless, he, that is God, remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So the error that Paul is refuting here is the thought that God is reactionary in his, in his planning. The Jews had been unfaithful in so many ways at so many times that surely at some point God had chosen to be unfaithful on his end. And yet no point in Israel's history is this the case. It was not the case when Israel feared the Canaanites and ended up dying in the wilderness. It was not the case during the time of the judges when every man did what was right in their own eyes. It was not the case when the people cried out for a king like the other nations around them. It was not the case when the people of Israel were shipped off into captivity for 70 years. And not even in Paul's time, when unfaithful Jews were refusing to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, was God going to be unfaithful to them or to his promise? Paul emphatically rebukes the thought that God could at any point be faithless with an exclamation of, by no means, which I'll have to say I feel like the ESV puts very weakly. I would even go with New American Standard or King James or NIV, may it never be, God forbid, or not at all. seems to convey a stronger emotion here than just simply by no means. But whichever phrasing you put it, it is Paul's a uh, very emphatic statement that there is no possible way that God could be unfaithful. This really is such a reassuring aspect about the character of God. We quickly grow impatient with those around us who fail to keep their word. Even as we were going through Genesis for several months, we were met with unfaithful men after unfaithful man. Yet through it all, God continued to establish his covenants. And the faithfulness of God is rooted in his truth and justice, which is why Paul quotes from Psalm 51 as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So God's faithfulness backs up his justice and his truth. The greater context of Psalm 51 includes the account of David's unfaithfulness and deceit as he commits adultery with Bathsheba and then murders Uriah uh, consequently. This psalm is written after the confrontation that leads to David's confession of sin and is written from a perspective that truly understands the nature of our sin against God. And in this recognition, we are blessed with David's observation. Despite the heinousness of our sin before God, though we make it, through it we make his justice known. His faithfulness is displayed through his mercy and his patience, yes, but is also shown when the children of Israel face the exact punishment in the wilderness that God promised. It is shown when the nation is not destroyed in its weakness during the time of the judges. It is shown when the king the people anoint drags them into the sins of their neighbors. It is shown in the long and complicated return from exile and the slow rebuilding of a place of worship. And it is shown in the word of God that has been revealed to those who are perishing. God is justified in his words. He prevails when he is judged. And there can be no fault found in what he does, for he is the standard. So we move on to the next objection raised. It says, but if the unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? 
that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. So the objections that one might raise here are becoming weaker and weaker. At this point, the objection boils down to this. If we are unrighteous, it just goes to show how righteous God is in comparison. And if we're helping God display his righteousness, why should we be judged for that? Paul interjects with a parenthetical thought here. He says, I speak in a human way to let us as readers know that he does not hold to this belief. These statements border on absurdity to the point where Paul wants nothing to do with those who might actually make these statements. The readers of this letter ought to know better than think that they could get away with unrighteousness under the guise of promoting the righteousness of God. At this point, we see the objectors are grasping at straws, trying to claim a stake as promoters of God's righteousness. Paul again with the statement, by no means, for how then could God judge the world? So if by means of our unrighteousness, we nullified judgment because we were promoting the righteousness of God, we would fall into a loop wherein we could, ne- we could always continue to excuse ourselves of judgment. God does not take away from his righteousness by judging those who magnify it, because all things bring about God's glory. All throughout the Old Testament, God's justice was made known. We see of it told in the Psalms and through the words of the prophets. Paul is moving the argument in such a way to make sure that no one can deny that the unrighteous need judgment, but that also none can deny that God is the righteous judge. So verse 7, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So verse 7, Paul turns from God's reputation as righteous to the sinner's reputation as a sinner. So if through our lives we're bringing greater awareness of God's truth, then why should we be labeled a sinner and not something like being labeled a bringer of the knowledge of God's truth? Through this verse, we may address a somewhat controversial topic that comes up today, uh, namely that of justifying a sinful action with the result that it brings about. There are a few common examples that are used, but for the purposes of this message, I am using that of Rahab and the spies in the book of Joshua. So in Joshua, we have the account of Rahab, a woman who hides the Israelite spies in the city of Jericho. The king of Jericho sends word to Rahab to deliver the men um, into the king's hand, but Rahab instead lies to the king and tells them that the men had left and she does not know where they have gone. We see in the New Testament, Rahab is mentioned in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews 11, and in James 2 is being justified by her action. Yet often the key action that we attribute to Rahab is the lie that she told the king, and not for what the Bible actually exalts her for. She is listed as a woman of faith in Hebrews 11, but that was because she welcomed the men into her home without care for the danger it may cause her. It was said that she was justified by her works, but those works are clearly pointed out as her reception of the spies and the directions that she gave them. So two things are true here. At no point is Rahab exalted for having lied to the king, but at no point is God receiving less glory because of her actions. Even though Rahab's lie is ultimately magnified in God's truth and brings about his glory, at the end of the day she is still accountable for the sin she has committed. We are still condemned as sinners for the sin that we commit, even though God's truth is going to abound in glory because of it. All these arguments that Paul is making culminate here in verse 8, saying, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? (coughs) So this heresy, um, there's a heresy known as antinomianism. It essentially says that because Christ has covered our sins, we are free to do whatever we want, that the more that we sin, the more that we see grace abounding. And in chapter 6, Paul will refute this idea further. We'll get to that uh, when we cover chapter 6. This was an error being spread by those who would call themselves Christians. 
But here in chapter 3, the error that we're dealing with is a Jewish type of antinomianism. So at this point, those who are trying to hold to this, they're not trying to increase the grace of God. They simply think that they can negate their own judgment by being a part of the team, bringing God's righteousness to light. Chapter 6, though, reminds us that this temptation is not unique to the Jews, but is something that we must always be on the alert for. For example, how often have we heard the phrase, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission? If Paul so vehemently rejected the notion that he would teach something close to this, we too ought to hope that the closest we are associated to it would be if someone were trying to slander us as well. We should seek to be free from sin in everything that we do and not claim God's uh, righteousness or forgiveness as something that we are relying on in that sense. Paul ties everything neatly together here by reminding us that those who slander him are justly condemned. There's no way that their slander is some kind of get-out-of-judgment-free card. So what should we take away from this section? First, that the faithfulness of God and the importance of God's commitment to his people in both the Old and New Testament eras. They've been given a distinct advantage as the ones who received the oracles of God. They were entrusted with prophecies and promises as the ones who, um, that they would be the source of the Savior of the world and that they would not be wiped out. We also see that God is completely just when he passes judgment and when he executes his wrath on sinners. Even though the actions of sinful man ultimately bring about the glory of God, there is no way that this would buy someone's way out of God's justice. We should in no case whatsoever claim that our sin is the means that God has decided for displaying his righteousness. We do not need to commit evil to bring about greater good. We'll turn to section 2 now, uh, verses 9 through 20. Paul opens with a question that is similar to his one in, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? But having seen what we saw in verses 1 through 8, the answer to this question is not as favorable. He says, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So the Jews had an advantage when we were talking about the significance of the promises of God that he had left for them in his word. And the Jews do indeed have an advantage when it comes to receiving the law. They knew the law. They knew what God had told them to do. But they're not any better off than the Gentiles because this whole time Paul has been leading to this one point. All men are under sin, and as a result, all are deserving judgment. Paul could have simply said this and left it at that. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing scripture, and this is a very basic truth that could in one sense easily stand on its own. But Paul knows better than to leave this statement without giving his readers proof for why he says it. This is true that Paul is under divine inspiration here. I am nonetheless thoroughly impressed at Paul's knowledge of the Old Testament and how he is able to take these scriptures and link them together for this proof. Without anything like a modern-day commentary or a Bible lookup tool or Google or Bing, Paul takes seven different passages and weaves them into a complete wall of man's depravity. In fact, this passage may be considered the defining passage on the doctrine of total depravity. Now, with those four words alone, all are under sin, Paul makes it pretty hard to argue that there are any who are free from the effects of sin. But he takes it a step further as he turns to the Old Testament passages into a full condemnation of mankind. It is true that the doctrine of total depravity is a part of the five points of Calvinism. It is not a man-made doctrine in any respect. Many can recoil from the name simply because it is a point of Calvinism, but in reality, this passage makes it clear that it is a biblical truth. Now, a major objection that many may have with this doctrine is that it appears that it says that we are doing nothing but evil all of the time. 
Really, the total depravity shows that even though we as sinful humans have not committed all of the evil that we are capable of, our entire nature is itself tainted with evil. And for the unbeliever, this is made known through the corrupt motives that dictate their lives. Now, in our day, we're less likely to run into an argument that we should sin to promote God's goodness or to promote God's grace. But we do often hear people from the worldview that they, uh, they say that mankind is basically good and it's only the difficulties of this life that drive them to do evil things. Now, those of us raised in the church or taught well about man's sinful nature may not have a hard time accepting that man is basically bad, we may not always have the best response to those who claim man's innate goodness. In fact, it can be quite difficult at times to get somebody to understand the fact that uh, God is the standard of righteousness and that they, in fact, are a sinner. Now, I'd recommend in a situation where you are trying to get somebody to understand this that you not start with trying to convince them of the nature of total depravity, but rather speak with them about the nature of God and why we should treat his standard as highest and why they have broken that standard. So we see through verse 10 through verse 18, Paul quotes from the following passages. Psalm 53, 1 through 3, Psalm 14, 1 through 3, Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, 7, Isaiah 59, 7 through 8, and Psalm 36, 1. So the first three verses here, 10, 11, 12. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, these verses serve to emphasize the reach that sin has in this world. Everyone who has ever existed falls under its power, and the base state of all who enter the world is sinful. There is a reason that each one must be convinced by the Holy Spirit of their sinfulness and be regenerated by him. No one can even understand the depth of their wickedness or their own sin. We see this in Jeremiah when we are told that the heart is deceptively wicked and that none can understand it. If we even begin to comprehend our sin before we are in Christ, we would be seeking a solution for it on our own. As it is, we are stuck with those who are worthless, as those who are worthless and unable to do any good thing. Verses 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This is a look into how sinfulness pervades every aspect of our speech and communication. Throughout scripture, we are warned specifically many times about the great potential of evil with our speech and the danger that comes from an uncontrolled tongue. See in James 3, verses 6 through 10, we have a great indictment on the tongue, which I'll read now. <coughs> it says, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Now there's so much that could be said about the danger of the tongue, or perhaps there's so much that shouldn't be said about the danger of the tongue. But either way, ultimately, we should recognize that all of us communicate in many different ways and that all of them were given many opportunities to sin. As a result, in all of these things, we should be on guard against these sins. Verses 15 through 17, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. These verses show how sin is present in our actions before concluding in verse 18 with a summary statement, There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now, we may not do every evil action that comes to mind, but we definitely do have evil actions that come to our mind that we do consider or think about or contemplate before deciding not to do them. Jesus made it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that even the thought of committing a sin is as bad as actually doing it. If you're angry with your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. If you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. And despite many who restrain themselves from following through with evil intentions, there are undoubtedly many more in this world who lack restraint and contribute to the evil of this world. So looking through this quotations, this passage, I'm reminded of the seven things that God hates or labeled as an abomination to him in Proverbs 6, 17 through 19. Uh, these seven things are an abomination to God, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. How seriously we ought to take this. We're given a specific list of things which God hates that he calls an abomination, and we see them mirrored in this list as things which are characteristics of all fallen men. And all of this culminates with a general lack of the fear of God. There is no fear of God in the one who participates in any of these actions, let alone all of them. Now, unfortunately, we don't get to end this week on a hopeful note. Um, we'll have to come to that in the beginning of January. Uh, we close this section just before we get to the arrival of Christ and his work and salvation. Rather, we end with a final reminder that we are all under judgment. In verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, we're used to the universal laws when it comes to physics. Everybody's under the law of gravity. Principles of the world work because they're irrefutable parts of it that hold together the same way every single time. There's a non-physics-related law that applies to all mankind, and that is, of course, the law of God. Whether we want it to be our standard or not, we are held to it and must adhere to it completely. Verse 21 adds to our hopeless situation because it reveals that because of the law, we are made fully aware of our sin, and by extension of it, our need to be judged by God. That is the purpose of the law. It was never intended to be an attainable and realistic goal for living, but instead an ever-present reminder of God's holiness and just how far apart we are from it at all times on our own. Now, if the Jews had realized this in the Old Testament, then the right response from them would be for them to take the sacrificial system seriously. Hebrews 9 is a great walkthrough of how the new covenant takes the place of the old and how the old system was supposed to work in anticipation of Christ. It talks at length about how, the, uh, how blood and death were uh, important in the uh, nature of forgiveness. Uh, specifically, 9.22 says, According to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. This is why it is important that they sacrificed the purest animals. They sacrificed according to the law, according to what God had given them, because those sacrifices, specifically on the Day of Atonement, were what brought about the forgiveness of their sin. For an Old Testament Jew to be uh, accepted by God, for them to be able to claim salvation, the method he had given them was the sacrifice of animals. And we're so close to seeing this in Romans. We've been from, verse one, from chapter 1, verse 18, we've been in this deep dive leading us through man's sin nature, and we've, uh, we've culminated with this ultimate list of man's depravity. Now, when we come back to Romans, we'll get to have the joyful side of all of this. 
chapter 3, starting in verse 21, moving forward. But until then, we must be sober and consider that a key aspect of God's righteousness is his justice, and that his justice is directed towards all who do not have their sins covered. So some questions to consider as we close. Are you not only aware of the fact that you have the word of God accessible to you, but are you also working to apply it to your life? Are you rejoicing in the fact that God is faithful to uphold all of his promises and that there is no place for doubting his words? Are you meditating on the fact that every one of your actions leads to the glory of God, and are you doing your part to be doing so in such a way that accomplishes God's will of desire? Are you on guard against the sin that is prevalent in this world? Do you recognize that all of mankind is evil and that without the Holy Spirit, all of our motivations are tainted by sinfulness? And are you submitting to the judgment of God? Do you recognize that there is no work that you can do that will bring about your own justification? Let me close in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your word. Um, We thank you for this reminder of your righteousness. Lord, we pray that your judgment would be weighty to us. We rejoice that you have given us uh, a way of salvation. We pray that we would be focused on the nature of Christ, his character, and his person. Lord, as we anticipate Christmas, as we look to um, just the miraculous nature of everything surrounding the fulfilled prophecies, uh, the um, wonderful, miraculous birth, and leading up through his perfect life, Lord, we pray that we would be mindful of his death, his resurrection, that it would be something that we consider serious, that we uh, proclaim this to everyone we come into contact with, that it would be urgent to us. We pray as we go throughout our week, as we um, continue in our work and in our interactions with one another, that we would be bringing about uh, the most glory and honor and praise to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.